wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to her servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 litres. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realise where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheap wine, after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Welcome to Pete's. Great to uh, see you here. What we're uh, doing over these uh, Wednesday lunchtimes in the run-up to Easter is we're taking a look at one of the eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus Christ, the Gospel of John, and we're examining one of the central claims that we saw in the opening chapter that in the person of Jesus Christ, God has made himself known. That in Jesus you can know what God is like and you can know God personally today. Now today, in chapter 2, we come to the first of Jesus' signs. I'm not sure if you noticed that when the passage was read out, but just glance down to verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. His first sign, his first impression. People often say you don't have a second chance to make a first impression. And so what is Jesus going to choose for his first impression? What does he want us to get first and foremost about him? Is he about to preach some cracker of a sermon and we think, wow, what wisdom Jesus has and what insight he has to us and the world? Is he going to calm the storm? Is he going to feed 5,000? Is he going to walk on water? Some incredibly powerful act. Wow, what an awesome person he is. If, if you're familiar with the Gospel of John at all, you will know what Jesus is capable of. So what's he choose? This first sign, this first impression, where you heard the reading, we find Jesus at a wedding party, a wedding reception. Now, a wedding is a time of joy. It is a time of celebration. And for want of a better phrase, I mean, <laughs> Jesus here gets the drinks in. The wine's run out, and he turns all this water into all this wine. You think of wine, and this amount of wine, well, you think of enjoying yourself, you're thinking of having a good time. Is this the first impression Jesus wants us to have of him? Um, interesting speaking personally, that, that was not the first impression I had of Christianity. For me, my first taste of it was being taken to church as a child. Now, whether that, this was my fault, just because I wasn't interested, or the church's fault for not really engaging, probably my fault, um, I can tell you that um, enjoying myself was the last thing on my mind. And, and as a sort of celebration, you know, I was celebrating when the service ended and I could go home, and it wasn't happening throughout. Um, and it could be some of you here today, you know, a similar bad impression, bad first impression. Although for some here, you can speak of a joy of following Jesus Christ. And you can speak of there being nothing better in life 
But you know, that experience of joy can come, it can go. Maybe for one or two here, actually that experience is a long time ago in the past. You've lost that joy, you want to recapture that joy. How do we get it back? So wherever we're coming from today with our impressions of Christianity, let's look at these verses now in detail and let's see what Jesus wants us to have as a first impression of him. And three things that I want us to focus in on on these uh, verses is first the wine itself. Why is this the first sign? What is the significance of wine? Then I want us to look at Jesus' quite strange comment to his mother in verse 4, my hour has not yet come, what's that mean? And then I want us to look at the response of the disciples, what's that mean for belief in Jesus today? All right, so that's where we're going, the wine, the hour, the response. First, the wine. And, well, I mean, notice first the sheer uh, quantity of wine produced here. You ready for a bit of maths? We're told in verse 6 that there are six stone water jars, each holding from 80 to 120 litres. So 6 times 80, 480, 6 times 120, 720, 0.75 litres to an average bottle. That means Jesus has produced here up to 960 bottles. And when you and I go to a dinner party, right, we bring one bottle, we bring two, we have a good time. 960 bottles. That is going to keep the celebrations going for days. Now, doesn't the Bible elsewhere say, do not get drunk on wine? What is Jesus doing here? The quantity of it. Notice also the quality of this wine. Um, in verse 10, the master of the banquet, um, the one who knows a lot about wine, he says in verse 10, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till last. The best till now. This is the finest of wines. This is not some Sainsbury's basic own brand, three point, you know, three pounds twenty-five. Um, do you know, by the way, what the most expensive bottle of wine is? Um, I've got it written here. Um, Domaine de la Romanée Conti. If I've got the pronunciation right, everyone have a hazard a guess how much a single bottle costs in pounds? No. All right. £8,310. That's one bottle. This is the finest of wines. This is 960. The value, the quality, the quantity. There's also the miraculous nature of the wine. The molecular structure of water is completely different to the molecular structure of wine. No one can transform one into the other, not even the greatest of chemists, and yet Jesus Christ does it in an instant. He says in verse 7, fill the jars with water, then verse 8, draw some wine out. How is that even possible? Unless Jesus Christ really is, as we saw back in chapter 1, verse 3, the one through whom all things were made. Water, grapes, wine. Of course, if you're someone here who doesn't believe in the supernatural, then you will dismiss this miracle out of hand as a fabrication, and I get that. I, I suppose the question for you is, how sure are you that the supernatural is not there? Because if God is there, as revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, if God can create something out of nothing, then it is very, very easy for him to turn water into wine. But we've still got this question, why the wine? Why the significance of it? Why is this the first sign? Keep a finger here. Let's turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 25 on page 700 
and nine. 709, as you're doing that, let me just say, not wanting to assume anything here this lunchtime, um, Christianity does not begin with the birth of Jesus 2,000 years ago. Christianity is founded upon all the promises that God gave to his people throughout the Old Testament. Promises to deal with all that's wrong with this world, promises to deal with all that's wrong with us, promises to bring in a new age, a new day, a future we all long for. And this prophecy from Isaiah is one of those promises. <coughs> Just listen to the language, the imagery used to describe this future day. This is 700 years before Christ. Okay, let me read from verse 6. On this mountain... The Lord Almighty, this is something God's doing, will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces he will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken in that day. They will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Um, I was chatting to a friend uh, this week and their seven-year-old um, child has been diagnosed with panic attacks. And what has caused those panic attacks is a fear of death and what happens when you die. I remember myself having similar nightmares as a child and thinking, you know, what happens? How can we know? And is it after death what it was like before I was born and that's just nothingness? And so what's the point of, of all this? I was speaking to someone here at church on, on Sunday a couple of weeks ago and there'd been a death quite suddenly in the family and her teenage daughter being rocked by it because this was the first time that she had come face to face to death in, in a very personal way to her. And what do you do with it? I mean, we, we don't normally talk about death, we tend to avoid it. Um, I've got a quote here from George R.R. R. Martin. He's the author of Game of Thrones, the hit HBO series. He was once asked, what do you say to death? And he said, not today. <laughs> Please, not today. Because if you've ever thought about it, it is, death is frightening. Death robs us of our loved ones. Death makes a mockery of everything we've lived for and worked for in life. And Christian theology teaches that death is the terrible consequence of turning our backs on God. That if God is the very author of life and we choose to turn our backs on God, then the, the only result can be death itself. And it happens to all of us. In Isaiah 25 there, that description, the, shr the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. And there, is <coughs> and there is nothing any of us can do about it. And it's into that context, a context we're all very familiar with, that we read this prophecy in Isaiah where God is promising a day when death will be destroyed, when relationship with God will be restored, a day of gladness, a day of rejoicing. And what was one of the key signs there? Did you see it? The imagery used of this day? Wine, aged wine, 
the finest of wines, flowing like at a banquet. And so when Jesus turns up on the scene, and what is the first thing he does? He turns all this water into all this wine. What is he saying? He's saying this day, this new age for humanity, relationship with God back again, death destroyed, it is here with me today. Or is it? Because we're, here we are 2,000 years later, um, plenty of tears still going on in the world that God's not wiped away and plenty of deaths happening in the world to every second. Did Jesus get it wrong? Did Jesus make a mistake? Did he get his timing wrong? Well, look, with that in mind, let's move on to Jesus' comment in verse 4 about his timing, about his hour. Look at verse 4. We know from verses 1 and 2 that Jesus' mother is with Jesus at the wedding and the wine runs out, so she asks Jesus to do something about it. Jesus' mother says in verse 3, they have no more wine. Now, I'd be interested to know what Mary had in mind here. Did, he, <laughs> did she know what was coming with Jesus? Or was it just like, oh, you're my son, do something about it, down the cellar, down the vineyard, can you get some more bottles of wine? We, we don't know. Um, but it seems that Jesus' mind is elsewhere when, G, when Jesus' mother asked this question. Because look how he responds in verse 4. Woman, not mum, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Now, is that not a bit of a strange response to you? I thought we were on the subject of wine and finding more wine. Why are you now, Jesus, talking about your hour? A little bit weird and philosophical. Well, look, John's Gospel, as we're reading through it on these Wednesday lunchtimes, you will notice the word hour comes up time and time again. Let me give you a couple of references. First, John 13, verse 1, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world to die, and to go back to the Father. John 17, verse 1, where on the cross, as Jesus is about to die, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. In other words, Jesus' hour is the hour of his death. But why is Jesus thinking about his death now? He's at a wedding, not at a funeral. What's wine got to do with his death? Well, look, we've already seen what the wine signifies to Jesus this new age, this new dawn for humanity, death swallowed up, relationship with God restored, gladness, joy, and we hear that and we think, that sounds great, bring it on. That must be easy for God to do. It's not easy for God to do. It is very, very costly to God to bring this in for us. Do you remember how John the Baptist described Jesus when he turned up on the scene last week? Twice we heard, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you know what that is? That is the Passover Lamb. That is the Lamb that is sacrificed and whose blood is poured all over the lintels of the door so that when God's angel of death passed through at the time of the Exodus, it would pass over those people. But it was just a picture. Jesus is the true Passover lamb. Jesus is the one who will be sacrificed. Jesus is the one whose blood will be poured over the lintels of the cross so that God's angel of death will pass over you and me. And Jesus knows what it is going to take for him to bring in this new age of flowing wine. He knows it here, even at the start of his ministry, what he needs to do what he needs to face, the cost it is to him to bring in this future for us. 
don't know if you've seen the um, first Guardians of the Galaxy film. Um, I won't. It's the Marvel, one of the Marvel comic book superhero films, and um, I'm not going to begin to try to explain the plot to you. Um, let me just say there are five Guardians. In the final scene, they are trapped in a spaceship plunging towards Earth. There's nothing they can do to stop the spaceship. They are facing certain death. One of the characters, called Groot, he can only say three words, I am Groot. Um, he is a tree-like humanoid, and this is a bit weird, keep with me here. Um, he starts to spread his branches and create this protective shield around the other four guardians. His closest pal, one of the other guardians, a guy called Rocket, knows what Groot is doing, knows what this will mean for him to do this, to sacrifice himself for the others. And with tears in his eyes, he pleads with Groot to reconsider. And for a superhero film, it's a very sort of poignant scene, particularly for a character that can only say three words. But as he responds, Groot, you can only ever say, I am Groot, I am Groot, I am Groot, turns to his friend with tears in his eyes and says, we are Groot. And as he says that and finishes his sentence, the ship crashes into Earth, Groot dies, but the rest of the four guardians survive. And as I say, maybe it's just me, but you know, it's a very poignant scene. It's a very moving thing to see someone give their lives for the sake of other people. Now, of course, that's a movie. It is not real. But Jesus Christ is real. And what he did on the cross 2,000 years ago, he did for you and for me. He was the one who died for our sins so we could survive our sin. He was the one who faced death. So you and I need not fear death anymore. He sacrificed himself for our sin so we could be forgiven by God, have relationship with God now, through death, into eternity. There's this old gospel song that goes, it wasn't the nails that held him to the cross. He could have come down, but this world would still be lost. The ransom was so high, only he could pay the cost. It wasn't the nails that held him to the cross. Oh no, it was love that held him there. Can I ask, is this your first impression of what Christianity is about? Or if you are a follower of Jesus Christ and been following him for many a year, is there a danger that perhaps you've lost sight of what is at the heart of a relationship with the God of the Bible? This deep, deep love that Jesus Christ has for you. The lengths that he has gone to for you. This new age he will one day bring in every tear wiped away, death swallowed up. This is where true lasting joy comes from. How did that prophecy put it? Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Which brings us on nicely to the last thing to see from these verses, and that is the response of the disciples and what it teaches us about belief in Jesus today. We read in verse 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and 
his disciples believed in him. Salvation is not automatic. Uh, we need to believe in Jesus. We need to respond. That, by the way, is why we're still waiting for God to wipe away every tear and why we're waiting for God to swallow up at death forever. Because God wants each and every one of us to have the opportunity to respond to Jesus Christ for ourselves. But we need to respond. And do you notice the order here in verse 11? First the sign, then the response. First the revelation of Jesus' glory, then the belief of the disciples. Now, why is this significant? Two reasons. First, biblical faith is never blind faith. Jesus Christ never asks you to leave your brain at the door, never asks you to believe despite the evidence. It is the very opposite. He says, believe because of the evidence, believe because of the sign. This is why I'm giving you all these signs. You don't have to turn there now. I'm just going to flick forward to the end of the gospel. John gives us the very purpose of him writing this account of Jesus' life. He says in chapter 20, verse 30, if you want to look it up later, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book, but these signs are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Biblical faith is never blind faith. Even the word belief, faith, pistis in the Greek, 228 times it comes up in the New Testament. Every single one of them best understood as faith because of the evidence. Not blind faith. Now, we spoke two weeks ago about a bias in our hearts that would push against the evidence, but that evidence is still there. And if you are new to Christianity, uh, new today, Jesus would say, look into my signs, examine the signs. They are given to you today so that you may believe. Second and final thing to see about the order here from these verses. Biblical faith always comes from beholding Jesus's glory. This is what the disciples did. They see his glory, then they believe. And they only saw Jesus' glory in the turning of water into wine. We've seen today the very hour of Jesus' glory, the full manifestation of his glory, when he gives up his life on the cross to die for you and for me. People sometimes say to me, like, Mark, I wish I had your faith, as if there's something inside of me, particularly sort of noble, that allows me to manufacture, you know, my own faith in Jesus. But when people say that to me, I say, look, I mean, you can have that faith too. Do you see what Jesus Christ has done for you? Look at his glory. Look who he is. That is what will move you to believe in him. I mean, if a superhero film can move us with tales of sacrifice, how much more could Jesus sacrifice when it is real and it was done personally for you? Move your hearts, your lives. I don't know about you, but I find that, you know, that the people I trust the most are those who I know love me, care for me, um, give me their time, their energy. You know, my wife's the obvious example. She has made many sacrifices for me over the years, particularly when I forgot the wild wedding anniversary one year. But you know, the more someone loves you and you're, you're assured of that love and you're assured of that care, the more you move towards them in trust. And it is just the same with faith in Jesus Christ. Do you know how much he loves you? Not just cognitively, not just... Do, do, you, do you experience that? Do you feel that? His care for you, the lengths he's gone to you, the sacrifice he has made for you, and the more you get that and grasp that and rejoice in that, 
the more you will feel your hearts, your lives just being drawn closer to him to trust him more and more and more. And that's John chapter 2. So let me stop there and let me pray for us. Let's pray. Father God, thank you very much for this next part of John's Gospel, seeing Jesus' first sign and him turning water into wine. Thanks for showing us from your promises in the Old Testament what it means, this new age, this new future, death destroyed, a relationship with you restored. Incredible that you would offer that for us and you would offer it through your death on the cross for us. Father, we think about faith, where that comes from, how do we have our faith strengthened today? Please, would we focus our eyes on Jesus, on his glory, revealed in the cross, each day coming back to him there, seeing his love for us, being reminded of that afresh, and having our hearts moved, changed, brought closer to him, that we may rejoice and be glad in this salvation. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.